If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with George Washington. He'll be answering our call on August 1st, 1799, at the age of 67 years old. He will die in less than five months, leaving behind a legacy that can never be matched. This call is different from some of the others. Prior to the call, I'd spent weeks preparing for what we'd cover, the American Revolution and his role in outwitting and outlasting the greatest power on earth, his eight years of presidency, his courageous and willing exit from power, and all the other extraordinary accomplishments that you probably have already heard about. I was ready for it all, and then we covered almost none of it. On this call, you're not going to learn about things that you already know. You're going to learn who George Washington was. You're going to hear about three events in his youth that could have altered his path in life, possibly causing him to be an admiral for the British fighting against the Americans. One slightly different outcome, and the world we know it would have never existed. You've probably never heard these stories. Before we start, you'll notice that the calls to 1799 sometimes get a little crackly, but don't worry, if you miss a word here or there, you won't get lost. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow historians and surveyors everywhere, I give you George Washington. Hello. Hello. Hello, General Washington. It is an incredible honor to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm actually calling you from the future in the 21st century. Now, the device that you're holding, it's called a smartphone, yes. and it allows us to talk as if we were standing five feet from one another. Oh, uh, my. Yes, I know. And it will also allow me to share this recording of our conversation, as well as your wisdom and some of your experience with people across the United States and around the world. And at this time, in our, in our time, People need wisdom and they need inspiration. And so I was hoping that I could ask you some questions. But before I do, I understand this is a very, very strange introduction. And I was wondering if I could answer any questions that you might have first. Uh, No, I uh, don't quite understand uh, how we can be talking over time. But you mentioned wisdom and inspiration. I always look for wisdom and inspiration, uh, not only as a young man, but also as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army and President of the United States. And I would assume that each president that followed me would seek uh, wisdom and inspiration when they led this nation. So I think it's what wise men do. (laughs) They seek wisdom and inspiration from those around them. Well, you certainly have plenty to offer. And I I will tell you on a side note, when you had said that you're not sure how this works, in our time, people use these devices all the time, and we don't know how they work either. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we still do use them and wonder. Well, yes. First, first of all, I'd like to ask you. I mean, it's been it it's been two years since you uh, left as president, and I, I guess I'm just wondering uh, what is it that you miss. Uh, (laughs) uh, Actually, Tony, it was the other way around. The eight years I was president, I missed being on the plantation. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> I said, I only ever wanted to be underneath my vine and fig tree, that I'd rather be there than emperor of the world. So as also eight and a half years uh, with Continental Army, that was my, my same wish. And as a matter of fact, I had promised Martha at our wedding that that's all I sought. And uh, she was very gracious to allow me to spend those two periods of time serving the nation that I loved and was committed to. So quite frankly, I, w I miss nothing <laughs> about the presidency or the army. Both times I, I told uh, those that elected me that I did not feel I was up to the task. As a matter of fact, when I was elected commander-in-chief in the army, I told those that elected me that I can only promise them that I would do everything in my power to live up to the confidence that they had in me. And then once again, when I was elected as president of the United States, I indicated I felt like I was a man being led to the gallows, that uh, <laughs> I, I didn't feel like I was up to it. I appreciated their confidence, but I felt at some point, I implied, I didn't say it, uh, but they would hang me <laughs> because they, <laughs> they, they found that I fell short. But fortunately, I was able to gather a cabinet around me, a group of men that really had greater wisdom and foresight than I. And then through the next eight years, I was able to, to gather additional men, Madison and uh, Monroe and, uh, of course, uh, Jefferson, Hamilton, Shea, Knox, all of those. So we, we actually were blessed mightily that we had men of, of great wisdom and stature in those years. John Adams, of course, as the vice president. Well, you certainly did surround yourself with extraordinary people, that is for sure. And as yes. you were looking at this task at hand, uh, yes. I don't think anybody would have been up for the task, and certainly, certainly not if they knew what was going to happen next, looking back at your life, that is for sure. Sir, how old are you right now? Uh, 67 and 10 months. Okay. I appreciate you being accurate. And it's August Surely. 1st, 1779, where you are. You're at Mount Vernon right now. Can I ask who's in the house with you? Martha is here, and it is uh, 1799, not 1789. Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, Mar Yes. Martha's here, and uh, we have the full uh, complement of servants uh, here. Uh, currently, there are no guests uh, Normally, as you're quite uh, aware, that after I retired from president as president, we were inundated with guests uh, who wanted to talk to the president. So at times, uh, we had as many as 20 people staying here. Is that something that you like? Uh, to a point. <laughs> uh, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, most guests are very gracious, uh, but others are rather bothersome. And some outstay their welcome, as you know, that uh, people going up and down Tidewater, uh, Virginia, as well as uh, south and north, they would uh, try to stay with family or they would try to stay with people of an equal uh, social rank. We entertained everyone and, uh, of course, uh, put them up both room and board, and uh, if they're servants, uh, we also housed them and took care of their carriages. Uh, if they, we had a blacksmith and uh, also a furrier 
uh, whatever they needed. And typically they stayed for three to five, six, seven nights. And we actually had to build a little extra space so that uh, we could have extra beds. And then the men could sleep sometimes five or six per bed. My gosh, well, I'm sure a lot of people do want to visit. You're, when you had said you have the servants around the house as well, you have your the servant that's with you all the time. Is his name Billy Lee? Is that right? Uh, yes, yes. He has been my manservant uh, for many, many years. Served with me during the uh, Continental uh, or the War, the Revolution, uh, as well as uh, through the first term and partial second term and until he could no longer serve. I'm curious what his life is like on the grounds compared to the other servants. Well, currently, uh, he is in his own residence, but up to that time, he uh, was with me, and I would like to think that he had a good life. He sure took care of me and was always there, a very faithful, strong, and uh, loyal servant. And uh, so we've tried to make... uh, with his injuries to both uh, patellas uh, in his knees, he doesn't get around well anymore. What, what, what but, happened to uh, his knees? Uh, accidents, just uh, working um, around the plantation and also had an accident when we were, as president, uh, he fell and broke a patella. So, oh. And as you know, there's our doctors can do quite a bit, but they were unable to uh, help him beyond that. And so he uh, tries best how to get around, but uh, he's not doing so well. He is actually now a cobbler uh, making uh, shoes for people in need and does a good job. He he wanted to do something. And so that's what we found for him to do. I didn't, I didn't know that he was a cobbler. That's interesting. He wasn't originally a cobbler. He learned to do that. He was looking for something useful to do. I understand in his exactly. day, he was fairly good with a horse. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I uh, learned to ride primarily from my mother, who was an excellent horsewoman. And uh, so I got to the point where I was uh, considered the best horseman in all the colonies. Because in the South, you uh, had to be uh, very good at what you did. And I like to fox hunt uh, as well as a gentleman of Virginia. And Billy followed me wherever I went, eight and a half years in the revolution. He was with me through the whole time on his own horse. And whenever we fox uh, hunted, I would go over a hedge grove and he'd come right after me. He never failed. He just, uh, so if I was considered to be the best horseman, I would say Billy <laughs> Lee was the second best because he. And maybe, who knows, maybe better because he had to follow me. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he'd give you the first. I'm sure he would. When, he, when you said your mother was a good horsewoman, at that yes. time, I didn't realize that that's where you first learned to ride. At that time, would your mother have ridden side saddle on a horse? Uh, yes. Martha also was an excellent horse, too. And she was the eldest of eight, uh, was a tomboy. She did not want to ride side-saddled, because then she couldn't uh, be as daring as she wanted, and so at times she did not. My recollection is my mother always rode side-saddled. Very interesting. When you describe Martha as daring, in our time when we would think of Martha, we would picture her sitting around sewing flags or, or something like that, and to describe her as a daring horsewoman, 
<laughs> that sounds very foreign to me. Well, I don't think people know my wife uh, very well. She was the eldest of eight. And when I married her, she wasn't five feet and she was 90, 95 pounds. Oh. She uh, was, was quite a dancer. She loved dancing the jig and she was very <laughs> active and you should have seen her go at it. That lady was, was full of energy, smile, sparkling eyes, great humor, but she also was a great Southern lady. When her parents uh, were away, they always looked to her to watch over her seven siblings. And she did that uh, with, I think it's called a, uh, a fist of iron in a velvet glove. She was firm. There, <laughs> there was no getting out of line, but she did it in love and great compassion. As a matter of fact, uh, Abigail Adams talked very highly of her that it was like the first social event that uh, Miss Adams went to. She said she met Martha, and it was like meeting an old friend. And they just had a great, great time together. And that was, uh, that was Martha. And uh, the stories go on and on about her. In, in our time, there are things that we know and things that we think, and I'm sure things that we have no clue on. But there are questions about, and by the way, when I ask this question, Martha will never hear this answer, because remember, I'm calling you from the future. There are people that question whether you loved Mar Martha, and I'm not trying to insult you, sir. Perhaps, you know, you married her because there, there was a, a fortune to be had that, who married her. I mean, what, how would you describe your relationship in that way? <laughs> well, uh, you're absolutely right. There is factual data, there is imputed motivations and what have you. You must remember that I was known as a hero after the French and Indian War, which started in 54, 55, lasted to 63. She and I got married in 58. I was uh, headed with General Forbes to take the French out of the Ohio River Valley. They had a fort at Fort Duquesne where the uh, Allegheny came into the Monongahela and mm -hmm. then uh, flowed into the Ohio. I came in 58, I was feeling poorly. My doctor was in uh, Williamsburg. So I rode all the way from the front to Williamsburg and on my way to Williamsburg to see my doctor. And again, staying with uh, friends uh, of equal uh, social rank, uh, um, I stayed with the chambers and Theirs was a large, very um, accommodating house, and uh, quite often there are people visiting and they're talking and sometimes dancing, playing music. And when I got there, M Martha was there, and I had heard about her. She had heard about me. I knew she was the wealthiest widow <laughs> in Virginia. <laughs> I also knew that she was pursued by many other men that were actually more considered or looking uh, toward the wealth. And, you know, I'm 25, uh, actually 26 at that time, and she um, did not have to get married. Uh, her husband, Daniel Custis, died intestate, which is he didn't have a will. And mm -hmm. so she, there was no guardian or overseer. So she ru could run the whole thing. Uh, and there's a story with that. But uh, 
So she did not have to get married, and she would not marry unless it was somebody her equal, somebody that she loved that she could give herself to. We met, we're polite, we stayed up uh, later, uh, others uh, retired. We talked to the wee hours of the morning, and we uh, agreed that on my way back, stop off at her place, uh, which was called uh, the White House, and we'd chat some more. So I did. I came, and I, I tipped the servants very liberally there, and once <laughs> again, we, we, we talked to the wee hours in the morning, and we agreed at that point that we were a good match. Because we talked about our philosophy of plantations, you know, the domestic, uh, the field side, the raising of kids. Uh, we were both uh, raised in the Anglican faith, and that was a large part of both of our lives and, and, and how a husband and wife would rely on each other. And we found we were a very good fit. She was charming, and evidently I, I contributed a certain amount of charm. <laughs> but we felt very, very comfortable at the end uh, of uh, the conflict uh, that I would return and we would get married. So did I love her? Did she love me? And that's really the greater of the two questions. Yes, you must remember, though, earlier uh, that and you say you're somewhere beyond 1799. Marriage in often cases were marriages of convenience they were in the same social economic rank, and it wasn't always for love. Those were very sad arrangements. Uh, some of them developed a love for each other, and actually, as you, but sir, are you married? I, I am, yes. For how many years? A lot. 25. Okay. Well, you're still a youngster. You haven't hit the best years. <laughs> they come later. Martha and I have been married for 40 years. I have fallen more deeply in love with Martha every year. She becomes more cherished in my heart, in my life. You know, she didn't want me to be general of the Continental Army. I took three days before I had enough courage to write, to say, they asked me to serve, and I did. And I told her that I could not refuse that it was my honor and I would do that. And I knew that, that she would not want me to go against my honor. And so I accepted that. And, and you deliberated she, that for three days? I did. I, I knew she just wanted to be, uh, I mean, that's what we agreed on, that I would be a plantation owner. And she just wanted to be just like her mother, who was her hero that ran a plantation from the domestic side uh, with uh, a man that uh, did well on the side of running the fields and the business. That, that was it. That's all she wanted. She wanted to raise children. She had four children with Daniel Custis before he passed uh, all of a sudden. That's, he was young. And that's why he, uh, they uh, weren't expecting, well, he didn't have a will. And uh, he thought he would live longer. And then when I was elected president, she did not come to the first inauguration. Really? She, uh, she was upset. And actually, my age may be showing. Maybe it was the second one. Okay, it was the <laughs> second one. She was, uh, forgive me, good sir, but she was pouting and didn't come. I mean, it excusable for the first one, but inexcusable on the second one because she wanted to 
and her twilight year. What I'm getting from this is that in your time, marriages, maybe the first consideration was that they made sense at first, and then later it was love. Or not, I suppose, sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Well matched from the beginning. And so it was not a younger, infatuous love. Uh, it was uh, two people that liked each other, were really somewhat enchanted with each other. Really? Uh, yeah. She had four kids who passed away, but she still was a lively, energetic young woman. So uh, there was components of love, quite frankly. It was a perfect match. Very interesting. You know, there's a certain irony. If you had decided to serve two or three more terms, you would have found out that you would have run into another building called the White House because that's where the presidents lived later on. And I, I'm just curious, why did they call her house the White House? I'm wondering if, if that's where the name came from, but why did they call it that? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to say because it's white. <laughs> uh, actually, because it was white. Uh, <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> uh, the presidential mansion was uh, was called the executive, the executive residence. So it wasn't until later that it was called the White House. I was in New York my first term, Philadelphia my second term. I was there to lay the cornerstone of the executive mansion in my Masonic apron, and we put that cornerstone. That's a Masonic cornerstone. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, everybody thinks when somebody has huge success, like you certainly have, I mean, I don't know who's had more, but everybody thinks that people that have had success, they start with everything and they just get lucky and that's the way it works. But that isn't my impression of how you started. So what was your, what was your life like when you started? What were you like as a kid? There was a, a couple of bumps in the road. I was born, uh, my father, Augustine, married my mother, Mary Ball Washington. It was his second marriage. He had been married before, and she had had four children, two died. And then he was uh, a widower for two years, but really missed uh, a wife and having children. And then they got married, and then within 11 months, I was born. My sister Elizabeth was born a year after that, and then in order for more children. So it was six of us uh, within eight years, and so it was a busy time, my childhood. But it was a plantation that uh, uh, I was born onto, of 2,500 acres and 20, 30 uh, servants there and uh, the family in a small four-room four home right on the Potomac River. It was a small city where our nearest neighbor was a couple of miles away. And so, and there was no really sizable hamlets or towns or cities anywhere close. And so when you're on a plantation, it has to be a self-regulating community where we, um, we raise our, our own food corn, uh, wheat, uh, we, a vegetable garden, uh, we would fish the river, we'd fish the ponds, uh, well, the Potomac we'd fish and uh, get large runs there. We would raise our, you know, we'd have chickens, dogs, cats, goats, uh, cattle, uh, bulls. So, and then of course we'd jar those, put them in jars, uh, pickled them, or what have you, and dried and salted other things. Uh, and so it was a, a very busy 
year-round effort to make sure that there was adequate food to feed people. And then we had to have our, our own wheelwright, our own blacksmith, our carpenters, our masons, those that uh, took care of the chimney. It just goes on and on and on. And so we had a sizable contingent of indentured servants, and we always tried to get a servant from England that had some sort of skills that not only could bring them to the plantation, but also teach the more ambitious servants the skills so that when the indentured servants worked out their seven-year commitment, then they'd be taken place by a skilled person on site. And so we lived at that first Mm. um, plantation for three years, and then we moved to a second plantation, Little Hunting Creek Plantation, for three years when three more children were born, and then we went to the Ferry Farm. Now, the uh, Ferry Farm was only four or 500 acres, where the other two plantations were 2,500 or 2,500 acres. And so the Ferry Farm was not self-supporting. But my father had uh, bought into an iron ore mine across uh, from Fredericksburg. And so he wanted to be close in order to be the manage, managing partner of that. And so the farm had to be supplemented from the business as well as from the other um, plantations. So for me, the three, uh, six years, I lived uh, at the ferry farm until I was in my uh, early 20s. My upbringing was on the plantation. I loved the plantation life. I wanted to do nothing else than to be a plantation owner. But some things happened along the way. Um, <laughs> Just that, a couple you know, things. But most people, Tony, don't realize that. Uh, so when my father was married previous, his two uh, oldest sons went to England to be educated. And they not only were educated in all the refined etiquette, but also learned Latin, learned Hebrew, uh, learned geometry, uh, learned accounting to budget books. And then wow. the other half of their, their life was meeting people, meeting all the right people. They're two wow, young gentlemen that would need to get married sometime and they would want to marry into, once again, the same socioeconomic level. And so we always look to England as the refined center of our existence. We were just out in the frontiers, and we were rough and not as refined. And so that's part of what they learned. And so they came back when I was eight years old, they came back and, oh, they were my heroes. They, they were so gentlemanly and the clothing and even the smells. You know, I, I smelled sweaty all the time, you know, but these, <laughs> these guys, you know, they just were who I wanted to be. They came um, back as refined a gentleman, huh? That's right. I thought that I would be going to England And I would be getting that same education, that I would come back refined, that I would meet all the people, that I would be exposed to etiquette so that I could just fraternize with everyone. I have a high level of education, but 
at age 11, my father died. Oh. And everything changed. How so? Uh, well, we practiced primogenitor then, primo first, genitor son. So the wealth of my father primarily went to his eldest son, Lawrence. That's to make sure that the name Washington would persist. It was a practice that had been practiced for, gosh, way back in the 1200s, that the name of Washington, which at one time was Wessington, and that goes way back there to another story. I didn't um, know that. Yes. We were located uh, northeast of London in Solgrave Manor, which had been given to uh, the Washingtons centuries ago for their service to the king. But again, that's another story. So Lawrence got the majority of the wealth, but Augustine also got the uh, Little Hunting Creek, and he got the business interest in the iron ore mine. I, as the eldest of Mary Ball's family, I got the ferry farm. How big was that? Was that 2,000 acres? Five to 600 acres. And it was uh, had 10 servants, and it lost money every year. It could not produce. <laughs> it was an old, uh, old farm, and it wasn't as fertile as the others. And so in order to feed the family, my siblings, and the, the 10 servants, other sources of income had to be gotten. But what normally happened is you would remarry, like my mother uh, or my father remarried my mother. But the only problem is my mother in the eyes of other people, was poor. And she had five mouths to feed. My youngest sister, Mildred, had died three years before. And so my mother, financially, was not a good catch. And so, and I don't recall, I was too young, as to if there were suitors or anything. But quite frankly, my mother was happy just as she was and raising the kids, but she was poor. Uh, Tony, we did not have enough money for new clothes. Not only was there not enough money to send me to England, there was not enough money to bring in a tutor for any of us uh, six kids. I there was see. An, ah, inadequate money for clothing. So now, if, if dad had not passed along when you were 11, you would have been sent to England to be educated. Yes, sir. And, and I would have been. And everything changed. Everything changed. On. Very Quite interesting. Frankly, I would have been a loyal Englishman. Oh, my gosh. You absolutely would have been. Every, I mean, that right there, that moment was the moment where your life went one direction, where it was going to completely go the other direction. And that was the first of many forks in the road. My life has been a series of forks, and every step brought me to a new direction. But I said the hand of providence was on me all those times. But at age 11, my life changed. Uh, it changed again in the years to follow. Uh, when I was 14, when I was 15, when I was 19, when I was 21, it goes on and on. <laughs> well, what, what happened when you were 14? Wait, before, um, before you tell me that, let me ask you another question. Sure. So when you were talking about that original home that your father had that had 2,500 acres and it had yes. 20 to 30 servants, 
What is the difference between servants and slaves, so that I can understand that? Uh, well, the difference, um, uh, I would say that's very gray. There were those that looked at the uh, Africans' slaves as slaves. They were bought and paid for, and they just needed to do everything. They were slaves. They were just, well, they were chattel. They were owned. And then there were those that looked at them as, you know, more than just slaves, but really took a concern for them. And we kind of felt as though we were more gracious and, and more concerned for the welfare. Not everybody thought that. Some people just felt that if you uh, you had slaves, then you're just um, a slave owner, especially in some of the northern colonies there. But uh, slavery was you know, part of our economy, part of our way of life. That's what I was born into. And so we like to think that the slaves had a better life on our plantations, and yet uh, it was still slavery. Yeah. Uh, they were, were still didn't own things. They were just personal property. Uh, although my views changed, Tony, over time on that, and they didn't just change 100% in every area concerning slavery. It was gradual, and even before I manumented or freed, um, or at least provided in my will, that the slaves that uh, I owned would be freed upon my, or after uh, Martha died, was still um, something that had been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but in an English context, just hundreds of years. So that's a long answer, the difference between uh, slaves and servants. I have a couple uh, questions yeah. about that. In your will, your intention is to free all the slaves once Martha passes along. After, all after of you my, my slaves, not, yes. not hers. And I guess my question is, do you think that that creates any risk for Martha if you should do that? Absolutely. Then why Absolutely. do it? I, I didn't feel as though I could do it during my lifetime, but I indicated uh, in my will that, uh, or I, I didn't prohibit her from manumitting my slaves before she dies. She could uh, manumit them in any particular time. But when she died, they would be freed at that point. So I see. Um, she could so do whatever they, she wanted. I, I understand. Yes, yes. Okay, so let's go back to the 14 and 15. You said there was a huge change when you were 14 and 15. Where were you going with that? Well, so at age 11, father dies. Uh, my education is stilted. I did get some amount of education. But uh, what was happening between age 11 and 14, I was growing. <laughs> uh, I was shooting up like a wild weed, but my clothes <laughs> stayed the same. Oh. <laughs> my mother could not afford to buy new clothes, and so my sleeves were getting shorter, my pants were getting shorter, my knickers, and my legs were pushing on the cloth of the pants. And so uh, she had to continue to let out uh, the cloth there. And, of course, it would be threadbare. And so she did the best she could to dye some of the, those threads or cloth. 
but still I was growing and the clothing was more and more ill-fitting. And so I would go to dances and you go to a dance to meet other people your age in the same, again, economic area. And since we were in rural area in plantations, two or three times a year, you would have a, a dance where young people from a larger area would come in. I would meet young people at church every Sunday, Pohick or Alexandria, but beyond, um, or Fredericksburg, um, that uh, to meet a larger uh, group of people, you go to these dances, it's a large uh, hall, a large room, there is a, a orchestra there, it's typically small, but it would be Christmas, it would be summertime, it would be fall, Easter, those type of things that brought us all together. And I grew, and not only were the clothes not fitting, but I got taller and taller, and so I'm with a bunch of 12, 13, 14-year-olds, and I continued to be taller. And so I stick out like a thumb. But since I didn't have the education, I, and I was dreadfully shy, Tony, the last thing I ever wanted to do was embarrass myself. And so you're getting big. Your clothing is shabby. Everybody knows you're poor. Everybody knows that you're not equal to them in education. And so you stand along the side uh, or the wall with uh, friends and you just kind of watch and you, you want to dance, you want to socialize, but my feet were also big and I did <laughs> not want to trip. So you, you want to be part of the group, but you're dreadfully frightened. And so you go there and at age 14, oh my gosh, you know, I recall uh, being at uh, one dance and some of the younger girls would come by and look up, and uh, I guess I was not unattractive. And, and they'd look up, and they'd want to have a conversation. And again, I'm shy. I'm awkward. I don't want to talk a lot, but I would try to respond shortly, and, but then they would just kind of run away. And uh, so sometimes a shorter boy would come along and say something that was funny. They would giggle and, and they'd uh, look at him and then they're gone. And so you just don't want to do anything that embarrasses you. That was an extremely awkward time for me. There are times that I could not go to a dance because there was not enough forage, not enough hay for the horse that was needed there and so uh to make the trip you some, mean? to make the trip because you'd have to ride an hour hour and a half to where the hall is oh. and uh, during winter riding a horse that hasn't had food could put the horse at danger and so uh, even that was curtailed even if uh, a young person or a young girl wanted to meet me at a dance i couldn't commit to, to that because i i just didn't know if uh transportation would be available. It sounds like when your father was alive that you were actually relatively well off. And then, yes. then there's a huge change to where your mom is basically taking care of you and she does not have the kind of resources that you had when, when dad was around because that gets spread out among 
your other brothers. Yes. And then I wonder, as you look back at your life, I, I didn't know all this, but as you look back at your life and how you were a little awkward when you were younger and, you know, your mom would have been seen as poor at that time. And then finally, when you get your, you know, you get this land, this 500 to 600 acres, you have to figure out to, how to be resourceful immediately because you already have nothing and you have property that is losing money. And as you look back at, you know, what happened the rest of your life and all the th obstacles that you overcame, I mean, everything that you accomplished through the Revolutionary War and all of this, it's, you look back at it at one big piece and it's impossible. And without <sighs> developing that resourcefulness with all those problems, uh, I'm wondering if, if, if that would have even been possible. I mean, would you, is that where you developed the resourcefulness that, that it appears that you had? Let me, te let me tell you about age 15. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting my warmed two up. Yes. Uh, my two brothers helped where they could. My eldest brother, Lawrence, married a uh, very wealthy daughter of the Fairfax uh, family, Anne Fairfax. Uh, they were as wealthy as they came in Virginia, and really? they lived four miles south of a little hunting creek at Belvoir, Belvoir, uh, Virginia. And he could see as I was growing that I did have certain positive personality characteristics. I was the eldest of the family and my mother looked to me to be a little father. And I had to set an example. I really would rather go play, but I had to stick around and be the example and do everything right. And through that, responsibility, leadership came upon me, and I had to deal with three younger brothers and a sister, and my oldest brother, Lawrence, plus his uh, father-in-law, uh, Colonel William Fairfax, and he would bring me down to Belvoir, and here was this huge mansion, and, and they had furniture and paintings and refinements that we didn't have and and I was just bowled over and and the colonel and his family I had never seen such genteelness at 13 and 14 and 15 I could see that this was a world I would love to be a part of but I, I knew at that point there's just no way for for what you just pointed out there's just no way I'm going to get that because no education, uh, no refinements, n n no money. There all, would all be sweaty, very, very, as you said. All sweaty, yes. <laughs> um, you know, one way out would be to marry the daughter of a wealthy plantation owner that had no sons. Mm. That would I would marry maybe the eldest daughter, then upon the death of uh, the family members then that would probably go to the eldest daughter and her husband, me. The eldest daughter could not own the land, but I could own the land. And I would oh. carry it on as a heredity. That's, that's part of the legal system there as well. And so you see, these dances were very important because if I met a young gal was the eldest of a, <laughs> and then when her and no sons, then I could have been paired up there but it wasn't working. So that was part of what was occurring at age 14. I was not a good catch, and it just didn't happen. At age 15, 
my brother Lawrence got with Colonel Fairfax and my other brother Augustine, and they said, you know, we think that George would do well uh, in the military. Uh-huh. And, and so they decided to buy a warrant that is uh, either the Army or the Navy. If you wanted to become an officer, it wasn't by merit. The position was bought, and that was called a warrant. And they wanted to, to buy a warrant for me to enter to the Navy because, you know, uh, the British Navy was the best Navy, the strongest Navy in the world. Right. But they had to convince my mother. And so they went to talk to my mother. Oh, no, no, we can't do without George and, you know, the, and what have you. I mean, I'm 15 now and, and she's relying on me more and more. But, you know, they said, you know, don't you know that there is no other opportunities for George? So, if he goes into the Navy and distinguishes himself, there may be a future. And so she agreed to it. They buy the warrant. She has a sea chest, puts all the clothing and everything in there that's required. It's on board ship. And I'm getting ready to go on board ship. And she changes her mind. She says, George, don't go. Is that right? You were just That's about right. to go to the British Navy and then mom changes her mind? That's right. My God. She had gotten a letter. That's she that second a, big moment. She got a letter from her brother, George, who I was named after, and he's still over in England, London, and the war with France was not going well. And the ensigns, which was the lowest officer, and they're generally the ones that were just starting out that a warrant was bought for, that they were, there was a very high mortality rate. And so the brother George said it would be foolish, that uh, it would be suicide to send me to the Royal Navy. And so she changed her mind. Wow. When you say buy a warrant, uh-huh. uh, can, I'm trying to understand that. So does, is, it, is it almost like somebody pays money and they give it to your mother so that you can go? I mean, when you say buy it, who's buying it and where does the money go? Well, the family would buy it. For me, uh, would buy an ensign's position or maybe later on a captain's position or what have you. And the family would buy it and the money would go. I'm trying to think, I would think either the Navy or the King. And I'm not certain now. <laughs> as to exactly where those funds went. But it could have been either the Navy or the king. Well, I think we both know that no matter what, if there's money going somewhere, the king gets some of it for sure. And there's more to that story as well. But that's on down the line when we rebelled. We called it tyranny, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> so so, this, so was, this was another moment where you were just steps away from the decision that you end up being a loyal British citizen. Subject, yeah. Yeah, well, at age 15, I could have disobeyed my mother. I could have gone. I had a decision to make. Do I obey my mother? Or do I go? Because this may be the last chance I will ever have to make something of myself. Mm. If, if I go, 
And if I distinguish myself, I am promoted. If I go distinguish myself and have bravery, then I'm promoted again. If I go distinguish myself, have bravery, and are in a battle in which I turn the tide, then admirals would notice me. The king would own, notice me. And I may get promotion to an admiral. I could get land. I could get money. I could get honors. And so my future was there. That's where I wanted to go. I, I wanted, well, all the Washingtons were ambitious. Back to the 1200s. Uh, the king gave us things because we served the king. I wanted to serve the king. But I also wanted to honor my mother. It's a commandment. Honor your mother and father in the Lord. Is that why you made the decision? That's one of the reasons. I honored my mother because family, family was so important. And I was a Washington. So hmm. I didn't go because of family. And gentlemen honored their families. I didn't go because I was a gentleman. Well, I was poor, but I was still a gentleman. And I didn't go because I was an Anglican. And at age 15, I felt as though I needed to honor my mother. So if, you're, if your mother had not given you any resistance at all, you wouldn't have had any fear to join the Navy. You would have been looking forward to it because that was your opportunity to move up. Absolutely. And so when you found out that she said you couldn't, you, you, you were probably, I'm guessing you felt like that opportunity was missed, but at the same time you had to honor your mom, your mother. I had, been honor I had been honoring my mother's wishes since age 11. I had denied many, many things because of all the same reasons. I felt as though, I would die without anybody knowing the name George Washington at that time. I would be a, just another obscure colonial. Just a guy in a red jacket. Pretty much that. I remained a loyal. But you know, Tony, let me ask you. If I had have gone and if I had been killed... Who would have been general of the Continental Army? You know, looking back at history, there were so many people throughout that time that were very radical, that made a lot of noise. But I don't think that, you know, people, it comes to mind, people like Sam Adams. There mm -hmm. are a lot of people that made a lot of noise, but, it, but I don't think that there were a lot of people that were calmed. You know, that were nonpartisan, that could sit down with two people that had radically different ideas, that if you could put those ideas together, that you could do something useful with it. And so to be quite honest, being a, a student of history, I, I, I don't know who, I, who would have been that person that could have rose up that and would have done that. Do you have somebody yeah. in mind? No, that's the opinion here at 1799, and people still are of the opinion that uh, nobody could have lasted eight and a half years against 
the greatest army, the greatest navy. They had just fought a uh, a world war and won, beat the French in the yeah. French and Indian War. They didn't think there was anybody out there uh, that could take in the place. And so would we even have rebelled? But then we go to the next question. We didn't rebel. What if I had gone, I had lived, I was distinguished, I did show bravery and courage, and I did (laughs) turn, there you go, you're ahead of me, good sir, I had become an admiral, who would have they sent to the colonies to fight the rebels? Oh my goodness, I hadn't even thought about that. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That's incredible. So can you see? That's that's exactly what we needed was you on the other side. My gosh, those wars were tough enough. Yes. And there are those that think with me rather than the Howe brothers uh, and the others that we wouldn't stand the chance because I would know the colonies so well that... uh, and maybe the colonies would say, no, we're not going to fight Washington. What, well, what have you? So you see, the decisions of a 15-year-old young man may have meant all the difference in the world. That's extraordinary. But, but that decision was based on a 14-year-old's decision. Wow. That, that was based on... 11, 12, and 13-year-old's decision where family mattered more than his own wants. That family and country and faith mattered more than his own wants. That brings me to my next question. George Washington was an honorable man, torn between wanting to serve his king and follow the commandment to honor his mother. He made the difficult choice that could have erased all future chances to advance in society. Yet, it was that same honor that propelled him forward when the colonist needed a hero. In the next episode, you're going to hear a nearly unbelievable story of George Washington at 19 years old, barely escaping an assassination. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.